The Lone Ranger has been a part of American culture since the 1930s. In 1933, listeners of WXYZ Radio in Detroit, Michigan, were introduced to the masked Texas Ranger who fought outlaws alongside his native friend, Tonto. George Trendle was the owner of WXYZ, and he wanted a cowboy hero series and turned the idea over to writer Fran Stryker, who developed The Lone Ranger into a radio hit. Soon there were Lone Ranger books and comics, and in 1949, The Lone Ranger TV show. The origin of The Lone Ranger remains shrouded in mystery because we've never known his full name. Neither Fran Stryker nor George Trindle ever revealed that to the public. Many believe the man who inspired the masked cowboy legend was a black man, a celebrity marshal whose life and law enforcement career sound like the stuff you'd only see in a fictional TV show or movie. But his life, his story, is very real, and it is truly legendary. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard, and this is the story of U.S. Marshal Bass Reeves. Bass Reeves was born on a plantation near Van Buren, Arkansas, owned by state legislator William Reeves. His parents were enslaved, which meant from the moment he was born in July 1838, Bass was enslaved. In 1846, when Bass was eight years old, William Reeves relocated his household to Paris, Texas. For generations, there was that stereotype of slaves in the South as being content. Some folks like to look back on that era in history and consider white owners of black men, women, and children as just nice people who treated those they enslaved with such kindness no one would want to escape life on the plantation. That was, of course, the literal whitewashing of history to overlook the horror of chattel slavery. Bass Reeves' story is a reminder that no one was content being enslaved, and some were lucky enough to survive when they were able to flee and find refuge away from slave states and territories. Bass would find and take that opportunity to be free during the Civil War. William Reeves' son, George, organized a cavalry regiment for Grayson County, Texas. Bass was forced into the Confederacy with George Reeves because William gave his son ownership of Bass. And this was a cruel and common practice during the war. Enslaved men forced into Confederate gray to fight the army that was fighting to free them. It was a lot to ask of a man who was constantly reminded that his life was in the hands of a white man who claimed ownership of him. There are two accounts of the way Bass managed to escape George Reeves. The first is that he took advantage of a prime opportunity to escape when George and the rest of the men in the regiment were sleeping. He ran and kept going until he made it to Indian territory where he found refuge. Now, the second involves the physical stature and strength of Bass Reeves. He was a large man. He was six feet, two inches tall, weighed about 185 pounds. And one night, George Reeves and some fellow soldiers were playing cards. 
Bass was invited to join in the game. And the story goes, Bass and George got into a fight, and Bass was not a man George could take down without the aid of a weapon of some kind. Bass ended up knocking George Reeves out cold. As an enslaved man in Texas, hurting your master was grounds for execution. Bass took the opportunity to save his life and gain freedom. He fled to the Indian Territory, known today as Oklahoma. At this time, the territory was ruled by five native tribes. The Cherokee, Seminole, Creek, Choctaw, and Chickasaw tribes had been removed from their ancestral homes in the southeast following the passage of the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Bass Reeves was listed by George Reeves as a fugitive slave, but once he entered Indian territory, he found a refuge because the tribal court's jurisdiction was limited to the tribes. The federal courts could pursue criminals within the boundaries of Indian territory, and if they wanted to, they could have pursued fugitive slaves. But once the Civil War started, all bets were off, and escaped slaves had a refuge in the territory. Bass remained in Indian territory for the duration of the Civil War, living with and learning the customs and languages of the Cherokee, Creek, and Seminole. When slavery was abolished, Bass Reeves returned to Van Buren, Arkansas, and settled into life as a farmer with his wife, Jenny, and their children. Occasionally, U.S. Marshals from Fort Smith, Arkansas, would call on Bass to serve as a guide when they were traveling into Indian Territory. Art Burton, who has written several books about the life of Bass in the Old West, says Bass once boasted he knew that territory like a cook knows her kitchen. And that's why U.S. Marshals called on Bass for help a lot. And eventually he earned more money scouting and tracking with Marshals than he could make as a farmer. When Judge Isaac C. Parker was appointed the federal judge for the Western District of Arkansas in 1875, he needed marshals he could trust to help bring about calm in the chaotic West. Judge Parker directed U.S. Marshal James Fagan to hire 200 deputies to bring about law and order in his jurisdiction. Fagan needed sharpshooters and fearless men. Bass Reeves was both. Plus, Bass had served as Fagan's guide in the territory, and Fagan knew Bass had language skills, which would help them navigate the territory and track down outlaws. When Bass Reeves was hired as a deputy U.S. Marshal, he became one of the first black deputy marshals west of the Mississippi. The jurisdiction Bass and his fellow deputies worked was expansive covered more than 75,000 square miles from Fort Smith, Arkansas into a majority of Indian Territory. When deputies traveled that jurisdiction to capture outlaws, they would often be on the road for long stretches of time, sometimes up to two months. They always had a wagon with a cook who could also serve as a guard, and they would have at least one posse man traveling with them. Bass Reeves initially had a barrier to serving warrants when he called up to criminals. You see, Bass couldn't read or write, but he had an amazing memory. Before he headed out to catch an outlaw, he would have someone read the warrants he needed to serve, and he memorized it. 
when he caught the person he was looking for, he'd take the warrant out, hold it up, and recite it line by line. That incredible memory was one of his essential skills on the job. But the one skill that made him a tough adversary for outlaws was his shooting. Bass Reeves could be a quarter mile away from his target and kill him with one shot from his 44 Winchester rifle. During his 32 years of service, Bass Reeves arrested more than 3,000 outlaws and killed an estimated 14 men. Reeves always wanted people to know those deaths were a last resort. The outlaws were shot when they threatened his life or the life of an innocent person. Bass Reeves was known in the Marshal Service as the Invincible Marshal because in all those years of service, he was never shot or injured. He did have some close calls. His belt was shot in two once. The brim of his hat was shot away. There was a button on his coat that was shot off. And once, as he was riding his horse, the bridle reins were shot from his hands. Bass Reeves was featured in the Fort Smith, Arkansas Times in March 1907 and explained the closest he believed he had come to dying was in 1884. He was riding the Seminole Whiskey Trail in pursuit of outlaws. And along the way, he was ambushed by the men he was looking for. They forced him to dismount his horse and held guns on him. He knew these men were killers, which is why he took them at their word when they told him he was about to die. An always quick-thinking Bass Reeves reached for the warrants he wanted to serve these men, looked up, and asked them what day it was. They laughed at him for asking such a meaningless question, but Bass Reeves told them he wanted to make a mental note of it for his records, for the government, so they would know the date he arrested these men. Now, these outlaws taunted Bass Reeves, reminded him they were the ones holding the guns on him. And as they joked with one another about how ridiculous this marshal was, Bass Reeves had the split second he needed to whip out his six-shooter. He shot one of the men dead, grabbed a gun from another before he had the chance to kill Bass, and then shot the third as he was about to shoot Bass Reeves. This wasn't the first time Bass was in a compromising situation like this, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. It was just what he considered to be his closest call. As Art Burton was researching the life of Bass Reeves and the work of marshals across the Indian Territory, he found that before Oklahoma gained statehood in 1907, an estimated 114 deputy marshals died in the jurisdiction. Those trying to maintain law and order, whether federal or tribal police, were constantly in the dangerous situations Bass had been in and constantly working to catch outlaws and maintain justice in the middle of a complicated judicial system across the jurisdiction. The marshals had jurisdiction over any white or black individual who was not a citizen of tribes in Indian territory, where separate native law enforcement and courts were established. Non-citizens who committed crimes against any native tribes person would have to be arrested by marshals and their cases heard in federal courts. This complicated system in Indian Territory made it a pretty desirable hideout for murderers, outlaws, bootleggers. 
They could lay low and often hide out for long periods of time, change their name, sometimes completely disappear. It's estimated that of the 22,000 white people living in Indian territory at this time, between 15 to 17,000 were wanted. They were criminals. An Oklahoma City newspaper described it this way in 1907, writing, 80 miles west of Fort Smith was known as the deadline. And whenever a deputy marshal from Fort Smith or Paris, Texas, crossed the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas track, he took his own life in his hands, and he knew it. On nearly every trail would be found posted by outlaws a small card warning certain deputies that if they ever crossed the deadline, they would be killed. For those criminals to ever face justice and have their case heard in the proper court, they had to be arrested. And one of the tools Bass Reeves used to maneuver his way through Indian territory and track down the outlaws hiding there was the art of the disguise. He often dressed as a preacher to get close to the person he was pursuing, confirm their identity, and then make the arrest. Dressing as a farmer once helped him arrest four outlaws at once. He'd heard these men were holed up in a cabin, so he found some farmer's overalls, put them on, drove a wagon to a tree near this cabin, and made it look as though he was stuck. When the outlaws came out of the cabin, they weren't suspicious of this farmer as they walked by. When they got close enough, Bass Reeves pulled out his gun, showed them the warrants, and arrested them. The tales of Bass Reeves, the invincible marshal, were constantly featured in newspapers as he bravely traveled through the jurisdiction to maintain law and order. But in 1886, the tables turned on Bass Reeves when he found himself on the other side of the law. In January of that year, Reeves was indicted for first-degree murder. The indictment came almost two years after he had shot and killed William Leach. Leach was the cook traveling with Bass and his posse men through Chickasaw Nation. The men had set up camp near the Canadian River, and the posse men overheard Leach and Bass exchanging rather heated words about Leach's cooking. Now, as the men recalled, this was not out of the ordinary, because Bass Reeves often made jokes about what a horrible cook Leach was. It was their normal banter and joking around. Sometimes it would get heated. But later that day, Bass Reeves accidentally shot and killed William Leach. It was a horrible accident, and nothing much was said about the shooting until January 1886, when Bass was notified of that indictment for Leach's murder and arrested by a fellow deputy U.S. Marshal. Bass Reeves stood trial for the murder of William Leach in October 1887. At trial, Reeves testified he and Leach had indeed exchanged words about the cook's lack of skills. He then told of the accident that led to Leach being shot. Bass said that evening a cartridge caught in his rifle as he was trying to dislodge the bullet. As he worked to remove it, the gun accidentally fired. And in a horrible twist of fate, it was William Leach who was struck in the neck by that bullet. And Bass Reeves immediately ordered his men to ride out and get a doctor. 
but Leach died before the doctor arrived. The jury agreed this had been a tragic accident, and Bass Reeves was acquitted of murder. The accident took a toll on Bass Reeves. It was tragic and shameful, and he regretted it for the rest of his life. And his family paid a price for it as well. Bass Reeves had to use his life savings to pay for his defense. With hardly any money left to his name, he had to move his family to a small house outside of Fort Smith, Arkansas, after selling the home he considered to be his pride and joy in Van Buren. And some folks believed Bass Reeves would never return to the Marshal Service. It had to be hard to go back to work after what had happened, but by the spring of 1889, Bass Reeves was back in the field, chasing outlaws and making news. The best example of Bass Reeves' quick thinking, his ability to outwit outlaws, was his infamous letter trick. Newspapers often wrote of Bass, but those stories never featured sketches or photos of him. So outlaws knew of the legend, but many didn't know what Bass Reeves looked like. Once, when Bass was out on the trail, two Texans got the drop on him, held him at gunpoint. Bass recognized the men as the murderers he was trailing. The men said they knew he was Bass Reeves, but he denied it, told them he was just a simple farmer who was afraid they were about to hurt him. But the men kept saying they just knew he was Bass Reeves, and they told him they were going to kill him. They made him ride along with them for some time, but eventually they just got tired of holding him and stopped riding. They ordered him off his horse so they could shoot him and be done with him. They asked him if he had any final words, and he said he did have one final request. He asked if one of the men would kindly read aloud a letter his wife had written him. They agreed and let him retrieve the letter, and one of the men moved forward towards Bass so he could grab the letter to read it. Bass held the letter out, and as he did so, he displayed Academy Award-winning acting skills. His hand was shaking so much, the man had to grab Bass by the arm to try to hold him steady so he could take the letter. He looked to his partner in crime for just a split second. He took his eyes off Bass Reeves. Bass was able to draw his gun on the man who planned to read that letter to him, and the other outlaw quickly dropped his gun and surrendered. In fact, this worked so well, Bass Reeves would use this trick many times. Another poignant aspect of Bass Reeves' mission to maintain justice, preserve law and order, was that he, a black man who had been born enslaved, would often pursue white men wanted for carrying out racial terror lynchings and racially motivated hate crimes. Notably, Bass Reeves arrested five white men for the murder of Ed Chalmers, a black man, and his common-law wife, a white woman named Mae Headley. The Muskogee Phoenix wrote of the tragedy on March 28, 1898, noting that this black man and white woman, being husband and wife, had grated on the nerves of neighbors. Some of those neighbors assembled on a Saturday night during a rainstorm and headed out to the Chalmers farm 
where they murdered May in cold blood, shooting her as she lay sleeping in bed. Ed caught the men in the act and returned fire before he was shot several times. Ed mortally wounded one of the men who was found dead in town later that night. What these white assailants did not know was that after Ed and May had been shot, as the men stayed in the room gloating over what they had done, Ed Chalmers had not passed on yet. He was still alive, struggling to breathe, but alive. And when the tragedy was discovered, he was able to make a dying statement named the men in the house that night before he took his last breath. Bass Reeves was dispatched to pursue the killers, and days later, in conjunction with fellow deputies, five white men were arrested for the murders. A sixth white man, prominent landowner William Lamont, was notably arrested the same day. Bass Reeves took Lamont into custody when the landowner was walking his cotton field. Lamont wielded his money and power and a good attorney to help him avoid jail time and was set free. As Bass continued his work for the Marshal Service, he suffered loss at home when his wife, Jenny, passed away in 1896. Around the turn of the century, he met and married his second wife, Winter. Between Jenny and Winter, Bass Reeves fathered 11 children, In 1902, he faced the toughest manhunt of his life when an arrest warrant was issued for his son, Ben. In a fit of jealous rage, Ben Reeves had murdered his wife after he learned she had been unfaithful. Ben fled into Indian territory, so when the warrant was issued in Bass's jurisdiction, other marshals offered to pursue Ben. But Bass Reeves said the law was the law and he needed to be the one to bring Ben in. Two weeks later, Bass took his son into custody. Ben Reeves was tried, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison at Leavenworth, Kansas. Years later, he applied for and was granted a pardon due to his good behavior behind bars. When Bass arrested his son in 1902, He was 64 years old and still one of the most respected deputies in the Marshal Service. But over the next few years, he faced health challenges that would slow him down a bit. His last big gunfight as a U.S. Marshal took place on March 16, 1907 in Muskogee, where a group of black anarchists known as the United Socialist Club moved in and took over a home. They declared ownership saying they could make that claim on any home in the town. And when police tried to evict the group, they were shot, but escaped. Bass was called in along with Chief Deputy U.S. Marshal Bud Ledbetter and a few other marshals and deputy marshals. Bass was not with Ledbetter and the other men when they initially arrived at the home and gunfire erupted. Bass Reeves arrived soon after when Ledbetter and his men were under intense fire. From his position, Bass realized most of the shots were coming from an upstairs window. He was able to return fire and kill the anarchist firing from that window. Eventually, the members of the group who survived that shootout surrendered. 
Ledbetter would later say Bass Reeves was one of the bravest men he had ever known. Bass Reeves, who arrested thousands of outlaws while serving with such bravery in the Marshal Service, was rewarded for those 32 years of service by being forced out because he was black. On November 16, 1907, Oklahoma became a state. The Oklahoma legislature quickly passed a bill enacting Jim Crow laws that separated white and black people. Bass Reeves' career as a lawman had been one of freedom to pursue justice, no matter what a person looked like. But suddenly the color of the person pursuing outlaws mattered to the new state of Oklahoma. And Bass Reeves and his fellow black deputies were forced into retirement. Newspapers wrote of Bass Reeves' retirement from the Marshal Service and noted he was 67 years old, but he looked like a man in his 40s. Bass said he still felt like a man in his 40s and didn't want to give up law enforcement. So he went to work as a police officer in the city of Muskogee. He worked as a patrol officer for two years until time and his age began to catch up with him. Bass Reeves became seriously ill in the fall of 1909, and on January 12, 1910, Bass died. The death and funeral of Bass Reeves made national news, with newspapers sharing his obituary and details of some of his infamous arrests. There were stories about the large number of people who showed up to pay their final respects when Bass Reeves was laid to rest. Hundreds of friends and colleagues, black, white, and native, gathered in a cemetery in Muskogee, Oklahoma, to say goodbye to the bravest man they had known. A legendary cowboy hero whose life, his story, his incredible career may have been lost with the passage of time, if not for the dedication of historian Art Burton. Burton spent 20 years researching Bass Reeves for his biography, Black Gun, Silver Star. And this was not easy work because the history of black people in America in the era of Bass Reeves was rarely preserved. Burton got firsthand confirmation of this when he was informed by one Oklahoma Historical Society that they were sorry they didn't have information to share with him about Bass Reeves because they, and I'm quoting here, didn't keep the history of black people. Burton kept pressing, kept researching, and little by little, he found records and newspaper accounts of the life of Bass Reeves. Through his extensive research, he is convinced that Bass Reeves was the hero cowboy who inspired the Lone Ranger. And his theory holds water. Songs and stories of Bass Reeves were recorded by the people who knew him and respected him, and they were passed down from generation to generation, with white, black, and Native families who had firsthand knowledge of Bass Reeves' life and his special skills in tracking down and arresting outlaws in pursuit of justice. And remember the Lone Ranger's calling card? He always left silver bullets. Well, Bass Reeves had a calling card, too. He always gave silver dollars to people to remember him. 
the Lone Ranger, known for his disguise, the mask he always wore. And we know wearing disguises was a tactic Bass Reeves often used to track down and arrest criminals. Then there's Bass Reeves' favorite horse. He preferred this gray horse that appeared white, quite similar to Silver, Lone Ranger's white horse. Burton's most compelling evidence of Bass Reeves inspiring the Lone Ranger circles back to criminals. Of the thousands of outlaws Bass Reeves arrested, many were sent to the Detroit House of Corrections, where stories were shared of how criminals ended up in the big house. Many would tell of this marshal who captured them in Indian territory. Remember where the Lone Ranger was born? On Detroit's WXYZ Radio in 1933. As Art Burton has written, Bass Reeves is the closest real person to resemble the fictional Lone Ranger on the American Western frontier of the 19th century. Now, whether or not you believe Bass Reeves was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger, you can't deny his place in history. His service to country, his unwavering belief in justice, and his duty to uphold the law. The story goes that Bass was once asked by a family member why he did what he did, why he risked his life to chase down criminals. Bass replied, maybe the law ain't perfect, but it's the only one we got. And without it, we got nothing. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. I want to say a special thanks to historian Art Burton, whose dedication and research has preserved the legend of Bass Reeves. You can find a link to his Bass Reeves biography that was a key source for this episode in the show notes, along with photos of Bass at southernmysteries.com. If you enjoy Southern Mysteries and you want to hear more and support what I'm creating, you can join me on Patreon, where patrons hear bonus content each month. It's called Southern Mysteries Shorts. A big thank you to my new patrons, Kimberly from Marietta, Georgia, Catherine from Loosedale, Mississippi, and Barbara from Homestead, Florida. Y'all make this podcast possible. And as an independent creator, it's so encouraging to have all of my patrons on board. If you'd like to join, you can sign up today and support the show at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. And remember, it doesn't cost you a thing to support the show by first rating and reviewing Southern Mysteries, where you're listening now. Always helps folks to discover the show and try it out. And second, sharing this episode on your socials so your friends know it's a show they should try out. Just appreciate your support and thank you, as always, for listening. 